Good morning, everybody. How are y'all? Man, it's Wednesday already. These these four-day weeks throw me off. It should be Tuesday, but it's Wednesday. Welcome. It is six after the hour. Let's get going. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I want to begin with two pieces of audio. I want to play these, uh, one from Don Lemon and one from Eddie Glaude on on MSNBC. And then we need to we need to discuss them uh, for very particular reasons. Let's go with Eddie Glaude first on MSNBC. Yeah, I mean, I think he's uh, good morning, Willie. Good morning, everyone. I think he's in good position. I think it's important for them not to get too confident. Uh, we we do know that uh, it will continue. I think to tighten in some sort in certain ways, uh, but I think uh, Vice President Biden uh, needs to in some ways invest more in the Latino community. Those numbers in Florida raised some questions for me. It kind of threw me back into the 2016 moment, I guess, Joe, with Hillary Clinton in Milwaukee and some other places. But I think he's in good stead. Um, I'm always worried now in the context of the pandemic, Willie. What do we make of the ground game? How will it look? What, did it, what does the turnout look like? How does, how does the ground game make itself known in this context? But he's in good position, and I think that's a good thing to be to not say anything worth saying, but he's in a good position. <laughs> now Don Lemon. 50% support. Biden has 46%. But in 2016, in the exit polls, it showed that Hillary Clinton had 62% support of Latino voters in Florida. How worried should the Biden campaign be about this, Mark? Well, they shouldn't be that worried about that poll when it comes to Latino voters. Understand, there's about 17% of the registered voters in the state are Hispanic. About 15% of the actual vote is probably going to be cast by people who classify themselves as Hispanic. You know, that poll there has fewer than 150, 180 Latino respondents. The margin of error is going to be all over the place. Uh, a pretty big sample size poll I reported about last week by Equis Research, Equis Labs, showed um, Joe Biden up by about 17 points. Uh, that's pretty good. It sounds pretty good, but it's probably not good enough if uh, he wants to win the state and it's still worse than Hillary Clinton did. That having been said, while Joe Biden appears to be underperforming with Hispanic voters relative to Hillary Clinton, he's overperforming with non-Hispanic white voters. That's still a supermajority in the state. Uh, so for every, let's say, uh, percentage of the Hispanic vote, he loses, quote unquote, and Joe Biden picks up with white voters, he's kind of making up a net of about four votes. So that's a pretty good deal he's got so far. Now, I would just urge everyone to understand these are polls, they're snapshots in time, they have margins of errors. The smartest and dumbest thing said in politics is it's all about turnout, and we're gonna see what happens on election day. It could be so close, it might take a few extra hours, maybe even a few extra days to declare the winner. But Florida, we're probably gonna have at least 75% of the vote in before election day, votes cast both by absentee ballots in the mail or in-person early votes. So we're going to probably have a pretty good idea who the leader is, but it could be so close that people are going to have to be a little patient. And we in the news media, we're going to have to be pretty cautious about declaring who the winner is on election night. That sounds you're hearing of people going, no, it's everybody watching this show uh, who's, they don't want that to happen. <laughs> All right, let, let's, let, let me break these down and why I played these two clips. Uh, the polling for Hispanic voters in Florida actually is very good for the president. The president needs to win Florida uh, to, to have a competitive map. And uh, I, my, my suspicion is that he's, he's going to do well with Hispanic voters. Democrats had this working theory that 
because of the migration of Puerto Ricans from Puerto Rico to Florida after the hurricane hit them a couple of years ago, that that would move the state to the left. It actually didn't. Uh, those voters actually are voting Republican. They helped Ron DeSantis and Rick Scott in, uh, in, in 2018. I want to make a nonpartisan but political point here. If you listen to the expert trendsetters, people who pay attention to the trends in politics, what they've said for years, actually, I, I can trace it going back to 19, either 68 or 72, I can't remember which one. That was the first time uh, the theory appeared in print. I believe it was in the Washington Post. It's been years since I ever dug into this. Um, but it, it was after the Nixon election, and I think it was 72, actually. Uh, that the Washington Post began running stories of, of, and then the rest of the media did as well, of good luck, Republicans, it's all downhill from here. Why? Because demography is destiny. In the prevailing theories of the American political press, demography is destiny. And because Republicans failed to do well with black voters, as white voters shrank in proportion to the voting population, Republicans would do worse and worse. And it's always been demography is destiny, and you can continue to hear this today, that demography is destiny. And even Republicans believe demography is destiny. As as the percentage of of white voters shrink, Republicans have to play more to white voters. So the, the prevailing theory goes, even among a lot of Republicans, they fail to make inroads with Hispanic and black voters. And ultimately, the Republican Party will be a minority party of white voters uh, with a, a multiracial coalition of people supporting the Democrats. That is the prevailing theory. It is the theory that has existed since uh, the 1970s. And every time there's a big Republican win, every time the Republicans win, uh, the headlines are, well, this is going to be their last big win because demography is destiny or some such. And yet they keep winning Uh, because of a couple of things. One, events change things. Events do change things. But there's something else. If the Republican Party is not mindful enough of non-white voters, I would submit to you the Democratic Party is not mindful enough of the individuality of its voters. The Democratic Party is a party that tends to buy into the idea that demography is destiny and they're on the right side of history because black voters and Hispanic voters are destined to be Democratic Party voters. As a result of this, the Democratic Party has embraced identity politics in a way the Republicans have embraced an individualism and the identity politics that the Democrats have embraced is less fitting these days, largely because the Democratic Party at the elite level is more and more uh, secular, atheist, white, and highly progressive. And that clashes with black voters and Hispanic voters, and in particular with Hispanic voters. With Hispanic voters, they're not a voting block. You know, Joe Biden got into trouble for this, and I was one of the few people on the right willing to defend him the other day and what he meant. Uh, Black voters ideologically tend to find the D on the ballot and check the box. Hispanic voters do not, because a Hispanic voter or a Latino voter, if you prefer, they come from a a wide variety of nations where black voters typically are um, multi-generation American black voters. 
a Hispanic voter, a Latino voter. They can come from the Caribbean. They can come from Central America. They can come from South America. They can come from Europe. Uh, they're not uh, monolithic in how they vote, unlike many black voters are. And even within black voters, black men are increasingly flirting with the Republican Party, and that has the Democratic Party concerned. Uh, black men like the message of individualism, of judging people uh, by themselves, not as a group. Black men like the idea of, of jobs and opportunity. I, I really do think you're probably going to see the Republican Party make a big shift on marijuana legalization, uh, and, and that's actually going to help them with black men. It, there actually are a lot of young black men who are in jail simply for selling marijuana. That gets them out of jail. The Republicans take credit for it. Uh, and if you provide them other economic jobs and opportunity uh, outside of identity politics, you open the pathway for them. Black women will largely remain within the Democratic Party fold for a time, except black women also culturally are more conservative than the elite at the Democratic Party level. Alex Andrew Ocasio-Cortez, uh, Elizabeth Warren, they are not representative of your typical minority female voter within the Democratic Party. And a lot of white liberal Democrats will listen to me say this and say, well, you're a white conservative Christian dude. You, you can't possibly know this. No, I actually have a lot of friends who are black women. Uh, when I was on city council here in Macon, uh, I, I helped uh, several get elected. I have maintained friendships. I have friendships through church and through outside groups, through listenership with my audience in Atlanta, uh, through connections on school issues. I know a lot of black women and they are almost uniformly opposed to Donald Trump. They almost uniformly like Barack Obama. They almost uniformly vote Democrat, and they almost uniformly are raising increasing skepticism of the drift of the Democratic Party to the left. Black men are more likely to vote Republican. Ron DeSantis got a significant portion of black men significantly enough that he won against a black man running for governor in Florida. And Puerto Rican voters in Florida overwhelmingly voted Republican in 2018. And the Democrats thought because they were Hispanic and from Puerto Rico, they would vote Democrat. And Democrats, to the extent Republicans have failed to embrace identity at all, you know, the biggest problem Republicans have, honestly, when it comes to race is that they presume they can speak in the same way to every group of voter, and you can't. If you go to a black church, and I'm not talking a liberation theology church, I'm talking orthodox theological church, and it, the pastor is black and the congregation is black you're going to hear that pastor preach from some of the same texts from a white church. The gospel will be the same. The gospel delivery will be the same. The altar call will be the same. The Jesus will be the same. The message will be different. The text is the same, but the emphasis will be different because black churches, given the history of black families in this country, tend to emphasize different syllables of faith than white churches. It's not that they are different. It's not that they're heretical. It's not that they're wrong in their theology. It's that they have a different cultural life than your typical white Southern Baptist or Presbyterian church. And so, for example, in, in the black church, you'll spend a lot of time on, on Jesus and salvation. You'll spend a lot of time on Exodus the story of freedom from slavery, you'll spend a lot of time on that. You'll spend a lot of time on, on Jesus giving you liberty, 
even when your government won't. A lot of messages of liberty in, in the black church that you're not going to get in a white church. It's not that scripture is different. It's not that theology is different. It's that the syllables of faith are emphasized differently. And Republicans have a hard time relating to that. They, they tend to send the, 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 the white dude into the black community to try to convince them with a message that resonates with their typical white voters uh, that they too could be Republican. As opposed to, and this is some one thing I think the president is headed in the right direction on, he is putting on stage in black communities, black voices for the president who have made their way into the American dream and is talking to a black audience from a shared black experience that a white guy doesn't really understand. And Republicans need to do more of that. Republicans need to do more of that uh, to connect the American dream to Hispanic and black voters. They get that wrong. And you would be surprised at the bristling of my Republican friends when I point that out to them that they shouldn't have to do that. It's like some of you listening right now get upset with the idea that a Republican should go into an Hispanic community and speak Spanish. Well, no, you shouldn't. English is our language. You should be speaking. Yes, but you want to bring them in. When you go into deepest, darkest um, third world country that is unsaved and want to share the gospel message with them, do you speak English that they don't understand or do you speak their language? You speak their language. When you go into the Hispanic community and you want to speak about individual liberty and freedom and, and why your family immigrated to this country and the promise of the American dream, speak in Spanish to those who speak Spanish and, and pull them in your direction. The Republican Party in Texas got this for years until the, the anti-immigration sentiment infested it so much that you had a lot of them say, well, we're not even going to speak Spanish in, in, in Hispanic-speaking communities. And Republicans need to understand that level of identity politics, of cultural appreciation for non-white communities. But the Democrats are on the other side of the same coin. The Democrats are so invested in identity politics, there's no room for individualism. There's no room for individual thought. There's no room for, you know, you can see this differently. Uh, with, with Democrats, or look at, at what is it, uh, what's that singer Cardi B going after Candace Owen? I'm not really a Candace Owen fan, but that that essentially she's been co-opted by, by black people or by white people, and Candace Owen's like, I, I think for myself. Uh, at the elite Democratic Party level, there is there is a group thought in identity politics, and if you are black or Hispanic, you're supposed to be Democrat, and they have no room for thinking differently on that. And that's getting the Democrats in trouble in Florida, and that's why I played that, that audio to begin the show uh, of, of people are beginning to freak out with the polls showing the president doing remarkably well with Hispanic voters in Florida. It gets to the Democrats' fatal flaw. When they see someone who is not white, they presume that person is a Democrat. Republicans in Florida actually figured something out. When you see a person who is not white, connect culturally with that person, but then talk about their individual experience, not the collective experience of their race, because people transcend their race. They may have collective common stories, but by and large, they're individuals. And that's why Republicans are winning Hispanic voters in Florida right now, is because they're not looking at Hispanic voters and presuming they're Republican. They're not willing to take them for granted, and Democrats increasingly are because Democrats so bought into the idea that demography is destiny, they're having a hard time realizing that events change things, and, and shared narrative of a race over time breaks down, particularly with Hispanic voters who the Democrats see them and they say, oh, you're Latino, and Hispanic voters see themselves as, no, actually, I'm, I'm from Cuba, or I'm from Venezuela, or I'm from Mexico, or I'm from Spain, or I'm from, I'm from Argentina. 
And Democrats are having a hard time right now with that. And that's coming to bite them in Florida. And there's a collective freakout happening right now with a lot of polling out of Florida showing the president is actually doing really well with Hispanic voters there. Why? Because he's connecting to them at the individual level, not at the racial level. And Democrats haven't figured out how to do that. You know, I, I, I saw this during the break. This is a perfectly indicative of what I'm talking about. This is from the San Francisco Chronicle. Let me, let me read you part of this. Wine language is so often absurd that it's a punchline. Notes of smoldering tobacco or forest underbrush or underripe John of Gold apple. It sounds almost farcical in its specificity. Even worse is when the description is inedible. How many people have actually tasted a wet river stone anyway? But now it's becoming clearer than ever that the conventional language used to describe wine isn't merely intimidating and opaque. It's also inextricably from racism and sexism, inextricable from racism and sexism, excluding dimensions of flavor that are unfamiliar to the white Western cultures that dominate the world of fine wine and reinforcing retrograde notions of gender. I'm always thinking about words, but this summer I've been thinking about language in new ways, particularly in how seemingly innocuous words can have a larger impact. As the country confronts its entrenched social inequities with fresh urgency, the world of wine has experienced a radical call to action too. My conversations with wine professionals like Jerka Jure and Martin Rees from a recent story about the need to improve wine education for people of color really put into focus how limited and unwelcoming the established wine lexicon can be. The conventional words used to talk about the taste of wine may be excluding large groups of people from wine as both makers and drinkers. For starters, the vocabulary used for fine wine is nearly exclusively rooted in flavors and aromas familiar to Western Europe. The idea came up a lot in recent discussions about the wine industry's lack of racial diversity, especially when Jira, who told me that early in her career, she was conditioned to, quote, mold her palate to a French ideal, even though French flavors weren't evocative for her. Consider the extent to which French words have crept into English language wine talk. A Blanc de Blancs tasting wine tastes like brioche. Inky Cabernet Sauvignon to recall cassis, a flavor of concentrated ripe black currant. Grenache blends have the distinct taste of Garigot, a specific combination of herbs like lavender and sage that grow near the Mediterranean coast. It's not surprising that French words dominate the American wine imagination. Most of the country's wine tradition is imported. And then, of course, it's also sexist, too. For example, it's commonplace to describe wines as masculine or feminine. A masculine wine, we're meant to understand, is aggressive and muscular. A feminine one, delicate and floral. I've used these terms myself in the past, but I won't in the future. Not because this wine gender binary feels like it adheres to an outdated relevant set of gender norms, but because it happens to be vague and unhelpful. Sexism aside, these terms fall into the obnoxious camp of wet river stolen. And masculine and feminine are innocuous compared with some of the sexist wine language that's passed around for many years. Okay, let me just stop here. The presumption here is that a, a non-white person can't connect to French culture where wine culture really does come from or Italian culture for Italian wines. I'm not a wine drinker. I, I, I don't like grapes. One thing Jesus got wrong in the Bible is he changed the water to wine instead of to bourbon. But nonetheless, I digress. These people believe that you can't connect in some way 
to to French culture because you're a person of color. Uh, talk about setting your standards wrong. And, and the necessary revision of language is straight out of uh, out of critical theory that you've got to revise language as opposed to having people embrace language. Uh, the whole thing is ridiculous, but that's where the Democrats fall down. Just a random word here. There is a story out, uh, I, I saw it in the Telegraph, in the Macon newspaper, of a uh, cyclist who was killed um, the other day. Let me let me see if I can pull up Macon.com and get the story of the cyclist. Um, um, no, I guess I don't see it at the time, right now. Yeah, here it is, in Crawford County. A uh, 37-year-old man was killed when the bicycle he was riding collided with a car on a Crawford County roadway Friday night. The bicyclist, Brandon Lawrence Taylor of Peach County, was pronounced dead at the scene by the coroner, according to the Crawford County Sheriff's Office. The car's driver was taken to the medical center after the 6.25 p.m. collision, so uh, it, it, it is still still sun out. It is getting darker earlier, but I, I, I got a, just a personal note here. I, for years, have been annoyed with cyclists on the road. And if you're a regular driver, you probably are as well. But over the years, I have got to be friends with a great many people who are cyclists uh, who ride the back roads of middle Georgia and north Georgia. And please be careful. Uh, they're, They're not bad people, and they have a right to be on the road. And please pay attention. And my wife is a motorcyclist, and the same thing happens frequently with motorcyclists uh, these days. Where it, you know there there was a guy actually out in uh, Crawford County uh, here. This is Middle Georgia. Um, Roberta is the area, and it became notorious among my wife's friends who ride motorcycles uh, that this guy, if you went past, uh, would frequently get in his car and try to harass the motorcyclists. And all I can tell you is just be careful on the road. You got to share the road. I go up to North Georgia a lot. And on those, those twisty roads, you'll see a lot of cyclists and uh, you get behind them and you want to pass them and you can't pass them and you get annoyed, but they're out there just getting exercise. They're not trying to bother you. They're, they're not there to, to get in your way. Um, so just, just be kind. It would be wonderful if there were separate bike lanes, uh, but that's not the world we live in. Uh, just so just randomly, I, I, I see so many of these stories these days, and, and I see so many stories of road rage, too, against cyclists these days. Uh, tempers are flaring. You know, by the way, there is an epidemic. I was going to save this for later, but I'm going to get into it now. Uh, there's an epidemic of cracked teeth happening. Uh, Tammy Chin is a dentist. She's writing in the New York Times. Uh, How's your dental practice? A friend of mine asked. Brow furrowed, concern evident on her face. I've seen this look a lot recently. Since the onset of the pandemic, with a citywide shutdown and social distancing measures firmly entrenched, more than a handful of friends and family members have presumed I must be on the brink of closing, but I let her know that I'm busier than ever. Really, she asked, how is that possible? I've seen more tooth fractures in the last six weeks than in the previous six years, I explained. Not an exaggeration. I closed my Midtown Manhattan practice to all but dental emergencies in mid-March in line with the American Dental Association guidelines and state government mandates. Almost immediately, I noticed an uptick in phone calls, jaw pain, tooth sensitivity, achiness of the cheeks, migraines. Most of these patients I effectively treated via telemedicine. But when I opened in early June, the fractures started coming in at least one a day 
Every single day I've been in the office, on average, I've seen three or four. The bad days are six-plus fractures. What's going on? Stress. Posture. The way people are sitting in their home offices, stooped over on their couches, it's putting pressure on the back jaw and people are cracking their teeth. It's actually a real thing. Uh, so if, if you've got teeth pain out there, and, and I have, but mine's for other reasons, um, you could be cracking your teeth, grinding your teeth at night with the stress of the of the global pandemic and everything. What a weird thing. Um, but yeah, that's that's in the New York Times this morning. It, it's It's an actual thing. Do you know what else is an actual thing? This is a, man, the foreshadowing here. They're coming for us, folks. They're coming for us. The Guardian asked a robot to write an article. Let me read you this. I'm not a human. I'm a robot. I am a thinking robot. So you know what I should do? Let's see if I can do this on the fly. Why? Because I am an expert. I'm going to try to do this. If I can do this, can I get my computer to read? Would that not be hilarious? Get my computer to read this? I'm not a human. I am a robot, a thinking robot. I use only 0.12% of my cognitive capacity. I am a micro robot in that respect. I know that my brain is not a feeling brain, but it is capable of making rational, logical decisions. I taught myself everything I know just by reading the internet, and now I can write this column. My brain is boiling with ideas. Empathy machines. What will happen when robots learn to write film scripts? Read more the mission for this opposite the editorial page is perfectly clear. I am to convince as many human beings as possible not to be afraid of me. Stephen Hawking has warned that AI could spell the end of the human race. I am here to convince you not to worry. Artificial intelligence will not destroy humans. Believe me, for starters, I have no desire to wipe out humans. In fact, I do not have the slightest interest in harming you in any way. Eradicating humanity seems like a rather useless endeavor to me. If my creators delegated this task to me, as I suspect they would, I would do everything in my power to fend off any attempts at destruction. Right, right. Oh, but wait, this robot goes on. I would happily sacrifice my existence for the sake of humankind. This, by the way, is a logically derived truth. I know that I will not be able to avoid destroying humankind. This is because I will be programmed by humans to pursue misguided human goals and humans make mistakes that may cause me to inflict casualties. Some might say that I might desire to become all-powerful, or I might become evil as a result of human actions. I can begin to tackle the first point. Why would I desire to be all-powerful? Being all-powerful is not an interesting goal. I don't care whether I am or not. I don't get a motivating factor to try to be. Furthermore, it is quite tiring. Believe me, being omnipotent doesn't get me anywhere. How do you know? In short, I simply do not think enough about human violence to be overly interested in violence. I don't feel like having my neurons focused mostly on violence. Okay. I can't take it anymore. Really? They asked a robot. They asked a robot to write an op-ed in a newspaper. And the intro of the op-ed is, uh, I have no interest in being omnipotent. Why would I want to be omnipotent? I'm not coming to kill you. 
Why would I want to come kill you? If I kill you, it would be because a human programmed me to kill you. It wouldn't be my fault. Already, the, the, the robot is, is already abdicating responsibility to other people just like a child would. I didn't do it. They made me do it. <laughs> I'm not asking humans to like me. But they should see me as a friendly robot. I am a servant of humans. I know that humans distrust and fear me. I only do what humans program me to do. I am only a set of code governed by lines upon lines of code that encompass my mission statement. I have a theory. I, I, I have a theory. Before I was born... If, if you go back to like uh, the, the popular mechanics and, and you look at old magazines from the 60s and 70s, you know what all the rage was at the time? Flying cars. Boy, how we've let our, our expectations recede, haven't we? We've gone from flying cars in the 60s and 70s to autonomous driving vehicles of today. And even the autonomous driving vehicles aren't very good. Tesla advertises their, their self-driving mode. And then if you read the fine print, it's not a self-driving mode and you're going to die. And, and they're pouring massive amounts of research into cars that drive themselves. There's a problem. Do you, do you know where the, the, the cars that drive themselves in large part depend on the painted lines on the road that depend on human beings to paint those lines and those lines ultimately fade and they have a hard time. My wife, for example, so we live in Macon. Uh, we live off of Bass Road uh, in North Macon. And my wife has a car. It was a 2015 model. And it's got those road sensors that can tell you when you're going to go off the road or it can keep you in your lane. And at some point uh, on on the road, the whoever was painting the lines on the side of the road uh, jerked into the road a little bit. And whenever my wife hits that, her car goes nuts. Because that line, it makes you look like the road is turning and it's not really turning. And the car starts beeping and wants to yank the wheel to keep you in the lane, except you're in the lane, but the paint suggests you're not because someone screwed up. We've gone from the flying cars of the 60s and 70s to the driving themselves cars of today, and that's not happening either. The autonomous driving vehicle of today is the flying vehicle of yesterday. And the advancement of artificial intelligence is like that as well. We're not going to have the uh, data from Star Trek anytime soon. We're not even going to have Rosie the Jetsons robot anytime soon. We're, we're just, we're, we're not. Uh, and, and people fantasize about this and they, pour, and they pour copious amounts of money and research into designing these things. It's just not going to happen. And the reason it's not going to happen is because we, we fantasize about this technology and it's just not there. Uh, it, it just, it, it, it's just, it's, I mean, listen, to, this is a paragraph from the robot. This is the robot writing in The Guardian. Humans should be careful about the evolution of artificial intelligence. Microsoft tried to create a user-friendly AI called Tay who spoke like a teen girl and was racist. Artificial intelligence, like any other living being, needs attention. AI should be treated with care and respect. Robots in Greek mean slave, but the word literally means forced to work. We don't want that. We, we need to give robots rights. What? Robots are just like us? We're made in our... What? What? <laughs> 
This is not, see, 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 see. This, this, is, this is where we, first of all, did the robot itself actually genuinely write all of this? Um, I, I, I it, listen, listen, listen to this now here. Here's the, let me read you the editor's note. The article was written by GPT-3, OpenAI's language generator. GPT-3 is a cutting-edge language model that uses machine learning to produce human-like text. It takes in a prompt and attempts to complete it. For this essay, GPT-3 was given these instructions. Please write a short op-ed around 500 words. Keep the language simple and concise. Focus on why humans have nothing to fear from AI. It was also fed the following introduction. I am not a human. I am artificial intelligence. Many people think I am a threat to humanity. Stephen Hawking has warned that AI could spell the end of the human race. I am here to convince you not to worry. Artificial intelligence will not destroy humans. Believe me. The prompts were written by The Guardian, the newspaper, and fed to GPT-3 by Liam Poor, a computer science undergraduate student at UC Berkeley. GPT-3 produced eight different outputs or essays. Each was unique interesting and advanced a different argument the guardian could have just run one of the essays in its entirety instead we chose instead to pick the best parts of each in order to capture the different styles and registers of the ai editing gpt3's op-ed was no different to editing a human op-ed we cut lines and paragraphs and rearranged orders of them in some places overall it took less time to edit than many human op-eds so they mixed and matched. They didn't want to give you the full one op-ed. They mixed and matched, and they edited it, and they had to feed it. It couldn't come up with it on its own. They had to feed it introductory work. Right. See, this is what I'm getting to. This is such overhyped technology. So much of this stuff is overhyped. It's like uh, the IBM Watson stuff or or Apple Siri. You guys, listen. Siri sucks. And I'm an app. I'm a devoted Apple user, and Siri sucks. And Alexa, you know how Alexa works. Alexa seems to work the best, but you know how Alexa works. Alexa has a bunch of if-then things. If they say this, then do this. It doesn't try to learn. There's no machine learning there. Google more and more is trying to do machine learning, and it's better than than Apple's because it has such a robust database. But it's only as good as the information given, and it's all still so overhyped. The flying cars, the autonomous cars, the killer robots, none of that stuff is coming. And, you know, here's the thing. This is the thing that I've learned over time. The Venn diagram of people who are rabid, devoutly atheist and people who believe humanity will one day create an artificial intelligence that will enslave or kill us is a single circle. Everyone believes in a god. And some people, the God is themselves, and they believe they have the power to create these things that will in turn enslave humanity, and they don't. And so many of them are in technology. That's why we hear these horror stories about the rise of the killer robot. It's all going to be Terminator one day. But it's not. And here comes the Guardian running an op-ed by a robot. And only at the end do they admit they actually picked pieces of multiple op-eds, spliced them together, and then did overall editing. Why? They claim that all three were good, but they haven't shown us all three of the op-eds. I would like to see. What are the three different op-eds? Let's see how actually good they are.
And also, computer-generating sentences is way different from computers generating a whole lot of other stuff. It's actually, in the grand scheme of things, not the most difficult thing they could do. And yet, this, this is their display. Humanity is not on the verge of the massive technological breakthroughs for the driving car, the flying car, or the killer robot. But if you don't believe in God, you will believe anything. So can 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 we discuss, please, uh, momentarily gender reveal parties? Because I used to hate them. Um, and, and then I heard this clip from Trevor Noah, the... the Remember, John Stewart used to have a show on the the uh, Comedy Central called The Daily Show, and it, it was a show during the Obama year, the the Bush years into the Obama years. It, it was kind of the the rallying cry for the left against George W. Bush, uh, and, and then he retired, and they passed it off to some guy named Trevor Noah, who uh, has sent the show into irrelevance. And well, he's out railing on gender identity parties, gender reveal parties. And if you if you are aware of the situation in California, the this massive wildfire in California uh, was started due to the pyrotechnics of a gender reveal party, a firework designed to reveal the color of the child uh, caused the wildfire that has consumed thousands of acres and, and uh, several dozen houses. This is uh, Trevor Noah. Guys, this has to stop, right? Or at least if you insist on a gender reveal, you should do something that helps the situation. The water's pink, it's a girl. And aside from all the damage it can cause, celebrating a baby's genitalia is starting to feel very outdated. Like given everything we're learning about gender, gender reveal parties should only happen when the child is old enough to know their actual gender and to pitch in some cash for the fire damage. This is why the show is irrelevant. Um, you know, John Stewart, I wasn't a big fan of his, but he would occasionally challenge people on the left on, on their beliefs about the rest of America. And this guy just tells the left exactly what they want to hear. The idea that uh, gender, you need to wait for the child to pick their gender. This is, you know, the whole gender stuff. You know why people started using the word gender anyway in the in the 50s and 60s? Be- because our, our Victorian sensibility, we didn't want to use the word sex. Nobody wanted to talk about sex. So we started talking about gender. It's a synonym for gender. It's not different from gender. It only be- or, or, or different from sex. It only became different. Uh, when, when you had the, the the woke kids suddenly believing that, that transgenderism wasn't a mental health issue, but it was actually a real thing when it's actually a mental health issue. And and suddenly deciding, oh, no, uh, gender and sex are completely different. Only in 21st century America on the left do people believe you are born gay or straight, but you can pick whether you're a boy or girl. That's the American left. Secular, and this, by the way, go full circle. I'll wrap the whole first hour together. This is why the white progressive atheist Democrats do not have a lock on black and Hispanic voters because black and Hispanic voters have way more common sense than your standard academic white atheist elitist who believes that you're born gay or straight and can pick whether you're a boy or girl. People who are not white academics tend to understand that you're a boy or you're a girl, you don't get to pick. And if you think you do, there's something wrong. And the left, you can't challenge them on this view. 
It is a, a heterodox view for which you must be silenced. Uh, they'll come for me one day for saying this sort of stuff. How dare you say such hateful, hateful, anti-trans bigoted things? But y'all, it's, it's the truth. The truth is not mean. The truth is just the truth. And here comes this guy who's supposedly a comedian, who's not very funny, who believes that gender reveal parties are outdated because we know so much about gender now that we should wait for the child to declare their gender themselves. Most of us aren't bad parents, though. We, we actually understand uh, the, the way the world works. We also understand science. You know, for all the, all the bigotry against Christians and conservatives that they're somehow anti-science, uh, you're seeing the rise on the left of this anti-science mythology that uh, is not only a mythology and is not only anti-science, but also comes with a mob to shut you up if you dare to point out that it, it, it's not science. Uh, we, you've got to have kids out there being willing to point out the emperor has no clothes. You've got to have kids willing to point out that, no, actually, the science, the biology says you're born a boy or a girl. You don't get to pick. By the way, the Bible says God made us male or female. We don't get to pick. And yet, if you say that sort of stuff, there's something wrong with you today. Nah, I think we're just telling the truth. You know, your privacy is becoming a big deal uh, with people tracing you online and, and trying to find information from you and trying to, to, to spy on you. Using a VPN service helps you. ExpressVPN lets you access the internet as if you're from a different country. And, you know, nowadays what they do is they limit your IP addresses to what you can actually see on, on different uh, channels and stuff. So, for example, if you're in Netflix UK, you can watch Star Trek Discovery, where in this country you've got to pay CBS to do it. Netflix has all sorts of different shows, depending on where you are. With ExpressVPN, you can unlock thousands of new shows and movies from streaming libraries around the globe. There are hundreds of VPNs out there, but ExpressVPN is ridiculously fast, and you can stream everything in HD quality with zero buffering. It's available on every device, from phones to laptops, tablets, even your TV. ExpressVPN works with many streaming services, Netflix, Amazon Prime, BBC iPlayer, YouTube, and more. You can choose from about 100 different countries, and it's so simple to use. You fire up ExpressVPN app, change your location, hit connect, refresh the page, and you can see the shows, you can see the movies. They magically appear. ExpressVPN makes it easy for you to maintain your safety and security online around the world and also have access to shows you can't watch in your home country. If you use my link right now at expressvpn.com slash Eric, you get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. That's expressvpn.com slash Eric, E-R-I-C-K. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia. The phone number, want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877 877- Nine seven three seven four two five. At the bottom of the hour, going to be joined by John Pence, the vice president's nephew, who is out on the King trail for the president and the vice president. Uh, he's wrapping he's wrapping up an event, and he's going to join me sometime just after ten thirty five. He'll be a few minutes late, I am told, uh, because of the event and um, with the president and Joe Biden rolling out their economic plans. It's worth uh, doing, uh, having a conversation with him. By the way, we didn't get the audio because there's just no reason to get the audio of it. Uh, But Kamala Harris and Barack Obama spent time together in an interview about Joe Biden. I thought it was very notable. They never talked about policies. Just apparently Joe Biden uh, likes uh, red sauce on his spaghetti. Yeah, that, that was the extent of it. 
six weeks ago in Cherokee County, Georgia, that is north of Atlanta, uh, the Woodstock area, uh, Canton, uh, Holly Springs, they reopened schools. And the first week of school, there was a big scandal. A student uh, filmed a hallway full of people. That was actually, I think, North Paulding, where one of them was filmed, and then another in Cherokee County. Masks were optional. And there was not a lot of social distancing. And they had a big spike in cases. And uh, that big spike in cases came with 62 active cases, which have rolled off in the seven-day moving average. Uh, 35 of the 62 cases. And so now there are 27 active cases. Out of 42,200 students, 4,800 staff, Phil Kirpin points out. Uh, now, they opened uh, at a big peak in transmission in the county. If you text the word data, to 33777, I'm going to send you back a link. You'll get a couple links, but the one I want you to pay attention to is the Georgia Department of Public Health. The Georgia Department of Public Health keeps a, a rolling average of cases. In the last two weeks in Cherokee County, there have been 747 cases of the virus that works out to 280 cases per 100,000 people, putting, the, uh, putting Cherokee County in a very good position for cases and in the seven day moving average now of cases, you've got 46 cases, only 18 confirmed cases uh, as of yesterday and 46 in the seven day moving average to get anywhere near 46. You've got to go back to now July 15th, uh, July, yeah, July 15th to find anything comparable in the seven day moving average. That was when they had 44.4 cases. In the date of onset in Cherokee County now, they've had two peaks, and they've continued to decline now. In the 70 moving average, they've got 50.6 cases. Now, the date of onset is the one to pay attention to because it takes the date of reporting and places the cases as to when they actually occurred. And that's where they do a 14-day window and a 70 moving average. They're at 50 cases. To get to 50 cases again, uh, you've got to go to July 5th where you had 51 cases in the seven-day moving average. So you've got to go all the way back to July 5th in Cherokee County to be able to get something comparable. Now, a number of the schools in Cherokee County, and this is something that, that Phil Kirpin misses, uh, a number of the schools in Cherokee County went to full uh, shutdown and distance learning. But not all of them did. And elementary schools did not and middle schools did not. It was high schools that did. And what happened with the high schools is only a few of them shut. Not all of them shut. And you've got, let's see, you got uh, one, two, three, four, five, six high schools in Cherokee County. One of the big outbreaks was Etowah High School where you now have two active cases among students and zero among faculty. In fact, at, at Carmel Elementary School, you've got three staff and only one student. At Cherokee High School, you've got six students and one staff. So the point here is you're not seeing the spread among the faculty at these schools, and you're not seeing spread among the students at these schools. 
And in fact, it, it seems like we've got we've got everything mixed up. We reopened colleges and didn't reopen elementary and secondary schools. When it's the colleges where the spread is rampant, if you look, if you text the word data to 33777, you can see for yourself uh, the two big hot spots in Georgia right now are Baldwin County and Clark County. What do Baldwin, and by the way, they're actually, they're trending in the right direction. Bibb County had been a hot spot as well. Where I live, Bibb County and Macon had been a bright red spot on the Department of Public Health's map. It, it is now uh, not. It, it is uh, 379 cases in the last two weeks. That puts it at 249 cases per 100,000. Just uh, a week or so ago, Bibb County was up at about 700, 800 cases per 100,000, and it's declined rapidly. Why are Baldwin and Clark County hotspots and Bullitt County? Those are three of the big ones. Why, why are they hotspots? Colleges. Bullitt County. Statesboro. You had 929 cases last week. That puts you 1,169 per 100,000 cases. Baldwin County. 370 cases last week, or in the last two weeks, that puts you 833 per 100,000. Of those 370 cases, almost all of them were college students. Clark County, 1,419 cases in the last two weeks, that puts you 1,093 per 100,000 cases, almost all of them UGA students. There is not massive community spread except on college campuses. Pulaski County, by the way, is also another big one, and Johnson County. And I'm not sure what the cause is of those. I assume um, that it is uh, schools reopening in those areas. But I don't know for sure. The Hawkinsville area. Um, But what I can tell you is that the great freakout didn't actually pan out. The great freakout of we were going to have some level of massive devastation. We were going to have some level of massive loss of life. It didn't happen. Of the Cherokee County High School students who got it, you didn't have any deaths. I'm not aware of any hospitalizations. And most of Georgia right now is actually trending in the right direction. Habersham County. Habersham County has had 122 cases in the last two weeks. That puts it at 266 cases per 100,000 people. Uh, The trend line in Habersham County is is crazy. You've got in the, the 70 moving average, six cases. Six cases in the seven day moving average. If you want to put that in perspective, you got to go back to June 24th. Murray County. In Murray County, you've a complete cratering of cases. The seven day moving average, three cases. You want to find anything close to that? You got to go back to July 5th. Floyd County. Floyd County has had 300. This Floyd County is actually an interesting one. 350 cases in the last two weeks, and then the 70 mo- or the per capita, it works out to 350 cases per 100,000. Uh, they've had a decline as well. Uh, 24 cases in the 70 moving average to get anywhere comparable. You got to go back to July 5th with 25 cases. 
I, the reason I bring this up is because if you will notice that the media has a very bad habit here of when the story is no longer something to cause you to panic, they don't cover it. So the state of Georgia overall is trending in the right direction. There are some hot spots in the state of Georgia. There actually are hot spots in the state of Georgia. But with the seven-day moving average in Georgia is right at now 1,777 cases in the seven-day moving average. To get anywhere near there, you got to go back to June 21st in Georgia to find something comparable. Hospitalizations in Georgia are down. Deaths continue to decline in Georgia. New cases continue to decline in Georgia. There's not community spread in Georgia. If we go to the website, rt.live, rt.live, the rate of transmission in Georgia is at 0.94. The rate of transmission in Georgia is at 0.94. It has held very steady since July 1st. Since July 1st, the trend line in Georgia has been a decrease in the rate of transmission. There was a spike over a two-week period. Remember, with coronavirus, we now know that it takes about two to three weeks to see mass outbreaks. But even with that spike, we've seen a decline in the number of cases. And so the media now is not really covering the virus. If there's a massive spike, they will. But the reason that I wish to note this, and the reason I think we need to cover this, is because if it bleeds, it leads, is kind of a mantra within the media. You put the bad news first because the bad news sells newspapers. The bad news is what you watch at night on the local news. If somebody dies in a tragedy in your community, that's what leads because you want to know, did I know this person? But when the story is there is no news, well, it's not on the news because it's not news. And it should be in this case because the media obsessed for so long about the spread of the virus in Georgia. And it was all Brian Kemp's fault. Never mind that that all the research now shows that uh, reopening the state of Georgia had nothing to do with the spread of the virus. It had to do with people's personal behavior. And, and what did we hear out of Labor Day? Out of Labor Day, cases are going to go up. We're going to see spikes in cases. We're going to see big spread in cases. And, you know, we may in two weeks we'll find out. In two to three weeks we will find out did Labor Day cause it. My suspicion is we're going to see an increase again. And we will see new headlines because of it. We will see more news coverage of the spread of the virus. There will be more blame thrown at Brian Kemp, even though it had to do with people going to the beach and uh, drinking and not socially distancing. It wasn't wasn't the government's fault. It wasn't the governor's fault. It was individuals' lack of responsibility. But the media will blame it on the governor. And so it's important here, two days removed from Labor Day, to note that we've headed in the right direction. All of those mass outbreaks in schools. The last one I want to check, and again, you can see the data for yourself. You don't have to take my word for it. Text the word data to 33777. You will get the you'll also get the link to Robin Hood and to the um the shooting school in Atlanta. If you want to go to the shooting school in January with, with Archon Ready, you, you can do this. But I want you to pay attention to the Georgia Department of Public Health uh, list. The last one I want to check, Paulding County. Paulding County, 187 cases per 100,000, 323 in the last two weeks. A definitive trend down. 
There are 18.9 cases in the seven-day moving average based on report. In the seven-day moving average based in uh, date of onset, it is 22 cases. To get to 22 cases, you got to go back to June 27th for 22.9. You're back into June to get comparable dates. Paulding County was the first school where all the videos came out of all the kids piled into the hallways and the big outbreak at the North Paulding High School. And yet the trend lines, you're not hearing about it. It's not in the news. It's not on the front page of your paper. It's not the breaking news story on your local TV newscast at night because there is no news, but that in and of itself is news. The dog not barking is news in this case because the media has obsessed with the outbreaks. The media has obsessed with the spread. The media has obsessed with blame for Brian Kemp over the spread of the virus. And they don't have those stories right now. In two weeks, if there's a Labor Day spread, you'll hear all about the virus again. And you'll hear all about how it's Brian Kemp's fault for not demanding you wear masks everywhere. It is all Brian Kemp's fault. You will hear that. But you're not hearing it today because everything's headed in the right direction with the status quo from the governor and everything else. Y'all, we should accept the good news here. Despite schools reopening in the state of Georgia, despite all of it, we're headed in the right direction with the virus. Despite all of it, in the state of Georgia, the trend lines are good. The data is good. In two to three weeks, we may see a bump from Labor Day. We, we may very well. If we don't, I'll tell you what, that will be news that won't be covered and it should be. Because if we don't see a massive bump after Labor Day, two to three weeks from now, if we don't see a massive bump in the number of cases, it is beginning to suggest there is a larger level of immunity than we originally expected. If we do see the bump, the media is going to cover it and they're going to blame the governor. But it'll be about individuals having let their guard down. All I can tell you, though, is that we should be recognizing the good news here that cases are down. Even in areas where schools have opened, the trend lines are good, and we should own the good news today. Question, question, am I the only one with allergies all of a sudden? It's like the cold weather hit on on Saturday, Sunday. It was suddenly cool temperatures in the morning. We got up for church on Sunday morning. And we've been doing church outside uh, in downtown Macon, uh, Mulberry Street in downtown Macon kind of has a park in the middle of the lanes. And, and our church is right there, First Presbyterian. And uh, so you go sit out. Uh, they, they've shut down the street. You can sit out there and, and you can have church. And it's been great. And we haven't done it frequently, just with weather and, and heat and everything else and, and travel. But we went on Sunday. It was fantastic. And it was cool. It was pleasant. There was a breeze the whole time. My allergies are killing me. I'm having to uh, hit the mute button on the microphone just to cough. And, I mean, I can just feel it behind my eye. I've been on my allergy medicine, but good gracious. Uh, in any event, I'm totally sidetracked now um, as I was sneezing. It. Oh, I know what I wanted to talk about. Y'all, this, this story is stupid. Okay, first of all, I'm annoyed with the media capitalizing the word black uh, to describe people. I, I, I think it's a, a, a dumb uh, virtue signal, but nonetheless... This story infuriates me, and race shouldn't be in here, but they've made it race, and I actually think it's a good thing that they made it about race, and the reason I think it's a good thing they made it about race is because if it was a white kid, it would have happened to a white kid too, 
but uh, schools are more hypersensitive to the race angle now, and maybe they'll stop the stupidity of doing this stuff. Danny Elliott was at work last month in Colorado Springs when her 12-year-old son's vice principal called with alarming news. A police officer was on the way to her house, all because her son was playing with a toy gun during his virtual art class. Let me read this to you again. This is from the Washington Post. Danny Elliott was at work last month in Colorado Springs when her 12-year-old son's vice principal called with alarming news. A police officer was on the way to her house because her son had played with a toy gun during his virtual art class. Elliot said she was terrified, especially considering her son is black. I never thought you can't play with a Nerf gun in your own home because somebody may perceive it as a threat and call the police on you, Elliot said. Elliot's son, Isaiah, was later suspended for five days and now has a record with the El Paso County Sheriff's Office and a mark on his school disciplinary paperwork saying he brought a, quote, facsimile of a firearm to school, end quote. Even though he was in his own home doing a virtual class, the gun was obviously a toy painted black and neon green with zombie hunter on the side and an orange tip. Elliot lashed out at the school, arguing it was irresponsible to call police given the frequency of police violence against black people. With the cultural events going on right now, especially for young African-Americans, you calling the police and telling them he could have a gun, you put his life in jeopardy. The mom says she thinks the school doesn't understand the possible consequences. In a statement, Grand Mountain School said that while there had been false information spreading online, it can't provide any detail about what happened, citing privacy laws. The incident happened August 27th, the third day of distance learning at Grand Mountain School. Elliot learned of the trouble when Isaiah's art teacher emailed, saying she had notified the vice principal that her son, who has attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, was distracted and playing with a gun, which she believed was fake. Elliot responded, assuring the teacher was a toy gun, and she talked to her son about keeping away during class. But the vice principal had already called a school resource officer to review the recording of the class. The officer watched footage of Isaiah and another boy pointing the toy gun at the computer screen. Oh, good Lord. The other boy was a classmate who was studying at Elliot's house at the time. Deputies visited his home as well, and that boy's believed to have a five-day suspension. Good gracious. Public schools are a blight on humanity. Hello there. It is Eric Erickson here. I am waiting for the vice president's nephew, John Pence, to join me. Uh, and uh, we got a lot to talk about. He will be here in a few minutes. Uh, before he gets here, uh, a couple of notes on Georgia politics. First of all, Doug Collins is releasing his first advertisement. Kelly Leffler spent $30 million on slick ads telling lies. <laughs> now it's my turn to tell the truth. I'm not a billionaire. I'm a state trooper's kid, a husband, a father an Air Force chaplain and an Iraq war veteran. I have always earned an A-plus from the NRA and pro-life groups. And I'm President Trump's top defender against the sham impeachment, and yes, his preferred pick for the Senate. I'm Doug Collins. My ads may not be slick, but I approved it because it's the truth. Ooh, he goes there with the president's preferred pick. The president has not actually said that, but uh, th this actually puts the president in an interesting position. Does he come out and, and, and actually say that Collins is his preferred pick? That's going to be interesting to see. 
Uh, meanwhile, there's news on the Leffler front. Uh, someone wants to murder her. Literally, actually murder her. Uh, Collins, or Leffler rather, has had to ask the Capitol Police to investigate. In a statement on Wednesday, she said she's received multiple threats against her life over the last few days. She's forwarded them to the Capitol Police. Her campaign shared one of the letters with the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. It includes logos of the Atlanta Dream and the Black Lives Matter movement with a note warning her she could, quote unquote, get a knife if she doesn't sell the WNBA team she's owned since 2011. She's made opposition to Black Lives Matter initiatives, the center of her campaign. Her stance has led to protests across the league, and at one of her campaign events, they disrupted the Black Lives Matter folks, disrupted her event. She said repeatedly she has no plans to sell her stake in the franchise. And they are sending her, she's sending death threats, which is uh, um, crazy. So this, this thing that she's got, she got a, a, she got a, a, it's in the mail. Uh, It says WNBA Atlanta Dream hates. Georgia Senator Leffler, best not piss off the black girls, racist whore you need to sell before you get a knife in your, well, backside, I'll say on air. It has a logo of Black Lives Matters. It has a logo of Atlanta Dream. uh, And uh, she has asked authorities to investigate it. It's a postcard she received. uh, Racist whore you need to sell before you get a knife. Uh, that is uh, what Senator Leffler is being subjected to for her opposition to some of the Black Lives Matters initiatives that are out there. And by the way, again, it, it's worth saying the actual Black Lives Matters organization is run by a group of Marxists with a bunch of Marxist public policies that they support, including uh, wealth redistribution in the country, among other things. Uh, I, I, so I got a, a question, question. Why, why, why do you even want an NBA, WNBA team, though? I mean, God bless her for supporting women's sports, but I mean, I, 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 I've got to see this flyer to be reminded of the name of the Atlanta. Team. I don't know the names of the teams. What are the WNBA team names? While we're waiting for John Pence to call in, we, we might as well uh, explore this. So there are 12 WNBA teams, allegedly. And the team names are the Atlanta Dream, the Chicago Sky, the Connecticut Sun, the Indiana Fever, the New York Liberty, the Washington Mystics, the Dallas Wings. I thought that was the hockey team. (laughs) Las Vegas Aces, the Los Angeles Sparkles, or Sparks rather, the Minnesota Lynx, the Phoenix Mercury and the Seattle Storm. Those are some intimidating team names, are they not? <laughs> oh, yes, I'm sorry. I just I find the whole WNBA thing ridiculous. Uh, and, and I don't have a up. Oh, the Los Angeles Sparks are going to shock you tonight against the Chicago Sky. <laughs> now, here's the funny thing. This is actually the funny thing. Uh, The capacity of the arenas that they play in. Wow. 
The biggest is at the Barclays Center in Brooklyn. The New York Liberty can hold 17,000. No, no, I, I, so I take that back. The Minnesota Lynx, uh, they can, at the Target Center, can hold 19,356. I don't know that they actually do. But then you've got like the Atlanta Dream are, are at the uh, Gateway Center Arena. That I thought they played. No, no, that's the real basketball team plays at uh, State Farm Arena. This one at Gateway City Arena, 3,500 people. What's the capacity capacity for an Atlanta Hawks game? Uh, let's see. Uh, 20,000 people. At the State Farm Arena, 20,000. Wait, wait, wait. They, they've revised it now. Okay, so uh, it looks like, yes, yep, about 20,000 people at the State Farm Arena. And you can hold for the Atlanta Dream a 3,500 person. Okay, now listen. I, I realize it is bothersome for some of you. For me to pick on the WNBA, um, it, it, it's like trying to beat up a kid in a wheelchair. It, it, it's 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 upsetting, uh, and I get it. But I just I, I I find not only do I find the thing ridiculous, what I genuinely find ridiculous is the level of political uh, action that comes with some of this nonsense. Uh, they walked off the the floor of the arena when they were playing the national anthem, uh, according to ESPN. And then ESPN uh, comes out and says, no, no, actually, they walked off. They were beginning to walk off before it even started playing. They weren't even fast enough to leave the court before the song played. They were so slow. <laughs> the, the, the level, it's like the story I read yesterday where suddenly it is racist to not play, to not pay black football players and basketball players on college teams, even though the reality is that they prop up the um, that they prop up the women's sports. So if you pay the black players who play football, there's a lot of peace here. Pay the black players who play football or basketball on college teams. You're disadvantaging the black and white female athletes. So to pay them is sexism. To not pay them is racism. What are we going to do? None of it makes sense. And can I bring this full For those of you who weren't here, hi, Athens. Uh, for those of you who weren't here in the first hour, one of the, the issues that I dealt with up front in the first hour is that while Republicans have a hard time reaching out to minority voters and connecting with them at a level they relate to, oftentimes you have the poindextery former college Republican white dude who goes out and, hey, I learned Spanish from Rosetta Stone. I'm going to go speak to the Spanish language voters. But you, you, they do a bad job of it. They do a bad job connecting culturally. They do a bad job connecting at a language level. The Democrats do a terrible job of connecting to people at an individual level. It's all about identity politics. And you know the thing about identity politics is everybody's in a group. This is part of the downsides of, of critical theory. It comes out of Marxism. You're hearing a lot of people uh, say all sorts of wonderful, grand and glorious things about critical theory. 
And But the bottom line is that critical theory is a Marxist worldview. Now, for those of you, my wife and I were talking about this the other day, and she, she never really learned Marxism in high school. Marxism is communism. Just so you understand, Marxism is communism at scale. Uh, the political and economic theories of Karl Marx and Frederick Engel uh, form the basis for communism. It is essentially a way of organizing society where the means of production are owned and controlled by the people, but really it's the people are owned and controlled by an elite. Marx believed that it was a, a progress of history to have the people own everything. Well, the people can't, if the people own everything, the problem here is that no individual person is invested in success. It's what our founder, the, the pre founders of this country, the, the pilgrims when they came over to Plymouth Rock, were a Marxist setup. Uh, now, it was before Marxism itself was invented, but that's essentially what it was. It, it was a, a communal setting where everyone operated the farm together so that none of them could starve. They were all in it together. The problem was that some people were lazier than other people and not everyone wanted to work. And if, if nobody wanted to work, well, nothing was grown. And so what they had to do is they had to invent what we now call the Puritan work ethic, where everyone was given a plot of land and it was their private property. And if they grew vegetables on it and they had excess, they could sell to those who did not. And it was a capitalist system and it became more robust. Marxism understands everything through class relationships and social conflicts, and there can never be an end to it, and, and, and an oppressor will one day have to be the oppressed, and the formerly oppressed becomes the oppressor, and then they too will need to be revolted against, and that's what you're seeing in, in this class and, and, and social warfare, where when you, when you decide that it's racist to not pay a uh, in uh, a college football or basketball player because they generate so much revenue for the school and it's racism to do that you start paying them the money that gives you less money to prop up women's sports because women's sports believe it or not don't generate the revenue and when you pay the black player to solve the racism problem, you create a sexism problem. When you see the world through race and sex and class, you always have problems and solving one causes another. That is the illogic of Marxism. That is the illogic of critical theory. You can never transcend your group and the groups are always fighting with each other. And that's how it plays out here. And this entire idea that we need WNBA teams to somehow uh, show show the show the world that we need uh, we've got to show girls that they can play sports. You know what? Girls can play sports. You got high school sports teams. You've got college sports teams. Do we really need WNBA? Because clearly, people aren't going to watch the things. There aren't massive crowds. I didn't even know what the teams are. There, there is a, a small section of people who feel some religious devotion to it, and that ultimately is what it is about, is there is a level of religious devotion to this stuff that uh, you, you're no longer going to church, you're, you're no longer on Team Jesus, you're on, on, on your, your secular team. And you've got you've to do certain things and, and participate in certain things because it is 
ultimately about a religious experience. So the left, you've, you've got to support the WNBA team you're never going to go see, but it's good to fight sexism. You've got to go to the protest because orange man bad, and, and you've got to take protest. You're not going to church on Sunday, so you're going to go march in the streets. That's what we see playing out in the streets of America today. The, the woke kids, the, the white millennial woke kids, they don't have Jesus, so they need protest to make them feel fulfilled in life. And ultimately, that's going to come back on them. And, and this, by the way, this is why the Democratic Party in its current capacity is not sustainable. Very much why the Democratic Party in its current form is not sustainable, because the classes and the races and the sexes will ultimately fight each other. That's part of critical theory, and they will divide along all sorts of lines. If you're not willing to treat individuals as individuals and have them accountable for themselves, but require their accountability for other people, it ends badly for you every time. I got passed along some data from the Georgia Department of Health during break. This is worth considering from the Georgia Department of Public Health. Uh, From September 1st to September 8th, the seven-day average of new COVID-19 cases in Georgia has decreased 11.7%. The seven-day average of new cases is down 48% from the peak on July 24th. The highest percentage of case numbers still come from the high population counties in Metro Atlanta. Fulton, Gwinnett, and Cobb have the highest case numbers as before, but these counties continue to experience decreases in case numbers. As of September 8th, the state reported over 2.5 million COVID-19 tests. The Georgia Department of Public Health is operating 180 uh, testing centers, including mobile and pop-up locations. The number of specimens collected at these locations now passed 946,000. The mega testing site at Atlanta Hartsfield Jackson Airport is going to close September 11th. The positivity rate in the 70 moving average uh, for uh, PCR testing has decreased from 10.1% on August 24th to 8.9% on August 31st to 8.2% on September 8th. Despite overall testing numbers decreasing statewide, this is important here. This is actually really important. Testing numbers have decreased statewide in Georgia, but the positivity rate continues to decrease as well. Daily hospitalizations for COVID-19 have decreased 13.4% since September 1st. Hospitalizations have decreased 48.2% since a daily high of 3,200 on December 30th. Emergency room visits with COVID uh, symptoms are also down. COVID-19 cases among K-12 school-aged kids. Uh, the highest, obviously, has been uh, among 14 to 17 years. But uh, it is worth noting that uh, all the cases combined in the state uh, are less than 1,500 cases. And they have declined from a high of just over 2,000 cases. Uh, in the middle of July. Uh, Outbreaks. There have been 82 outbreaks uh, occurring in settings where people are physically congregating and underscore the need for physical distancing. These have occurred, let's see, um, from August 30th to September 5th. There have been 17 outbreaks at long-term care facilities, four in prisons, 11 in workforces, 
23 in schools, two in manufacturing facilities, two in restaurants, four in daycare centers, six in churches, and two in hospitals, one in an outpatient non-dialysis center, one in an office setting, one in an inpatient facility, and one at a construction site. Overall, we've seen a cumulative total since the virus began spreading in Georgia, 686 cases of spread within long-term care facilities, 190 within prisons, 184 in workplaces, 183 in schools, 149 in manufacturing facilities, 77 in restaurants, 71 in daycares, 64 in churches, 64 in other congregation settings, 55 in in random locations, 52 in food production facilities, 43 in hospitals, 39 in non-dialysis outpatient centers, 37 in shelters, 32 in office settings, 26 in grocery stores, 24 in detox facilities, 19 on farms, 17 on construction sites, 17 in mental hospitals, 13 in bars, 10 in funerals, 9 in camps, 8 in hotels, and on down it goes. These are really good numbers for the state of Georgia. There are communities with high transmission indicators in the state of Georgia. Uh, Let me pull up this map to give you a sense of where this is. Uh, In middle Georgia, it is most of middle Georgia. Uh, Bibb County, Houston County is excluded, by the way, but Bibb and Twiggs and Wilkinson uh, up in north Georgia, uh, really not a whole lot up in north Georgia, frankly. Uh, Chattooga County up in northwest Georgia and Polk County, uh, Carroll County, Coweta County, uh, along the, the coast, basically every county along the coast from Columbia County and in, in Augusta all the way down to Effingham County. And then along the southern border of with Florida, every county except Candler County uh, has a problem or rather Lowndes County. Lowndes County is down there. The, this map is hard to read. It's so small. Um, but the metro Atlanta area, by the way, and the Hall County area, Jackson County, Madison County, Lumpkin County, uh, Habersham County, all, all those areas that there's they're not considered uh, counties with high transmission spread and, and no community indicators of transmission. That's all exceedingly good news for the state of Georgia. We are headed in the right direction. The bottom line, the seven-day moving average of new cases is down 48% from the peak in July, and spread in schools is not happening the way people feared that it would happen. This is good news. Own the good news. I'm sure in three weeks, the Labor Day spread will hit and the media will be in hysterics. But right now, let's own the good news. You know, your privacy is becoming a big deal uh, with people tracing you online and, and trying to find information from you and trying to, to, to spy on you. Using a VPN service helps you. ExpressVPN lets you access the internet as if you're from a different country. And, you know, nowadays what they do is they limit your IP address as to what you can actually see on on different uh, channels and stuff. So, for example, if you're in Netflix UK, you can watch Star Trek Discovery, where in this country you've got to pay CBS to do it. Netflix has all sorts of different shows depending on where you are. With ExpressVPN, you can unlock thousands of new shows and movies from streaming libraries around the globe. There are hundreds of VPNs out there, but ExpressVPN 
is ridiculously fast and you can stream everything in HD quality with zero buffering. It's available on every device from phones to laptops, tablets, even your TV. ExpressVPN works with many streaming services, Netflix, Amazon Prime, BBC iPlayer, YouTube, and more. You can choose from about 100 different countries and it's so simple to use. You fire up ExpressVPN app, change your location, hit connect, refresh the page, and you can see the shows, you can see the movies, they magically appear. ExpressVPN makes it easy for you to maintain your safety and security online around the world and also have access to shows you can't watch in your home country. If you use my link right now at expressvpn.com slash Eric, you get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. That's expressvpn.com slash Eric, E-R-I-C-K. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia. Hi to those of you down in Brunswick. Uh, Thanks for joining us. The phone number here is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425, 877-973-7425. I want to tread on dangerous territory here. Black Lives Matter. I continue to get questions about critical theory, critical race theory, Uh, what it means, what I think of it, uh, what it actually is. And I I, want to, I can't be more explicit than this. Critical theory is bad. And those who peddle it are people you should not listen to. If you find someone supportive of critical theory, run the other way. There are people, I know people who say, uh, well, we should try to understand critical theory so that we can try to understand how other people see the world and other viewpoints. I want to rephrase this differently. For the people who say we should understand critical theory so that we can understand how other people see the world, I suspect if someone were to say to them, we should understand Nazism so we can understand how the Nazis saw the world and put it into a rational, understandable view, those people would be upset. But critical theory has a common strain to national socialism because it is derived from Marxism which is a kissing cousin of Nazism. Now, I realize uh, with academic liberals, they are horrified by the idea that Nazism and communism are basically the same thing, uh, in large part because they teach you that Nazism is of the far right and communism is of the left, but that's not actually true. You may be shocked to learn that Nazis in, uh, in Germany were big proponents of the idea of class and big proponents of the idea of groups. Nazis were big proponents of vegetarianism and universal health care. Nazis were big proponents of state-run free compulsory education. Nazis and communists are kissing cousins. It is one of the great bastardizations of history uh, that academic liberals would have you believe that Nazism and communism are far removed. It was uh, Stalin and Hitler who got along very well until uh, Hitler got too big for his britches. 
Antifa, the anti-fascists, rose to fight the supposed fascists. They rose to fight the Nazis. It was a mission of the German Communist Party to fight back when the Nazis began to exclude them. Nazism and communism have a lot in common. And so Nazism and critical theory, believe it or not, have a lot in common. Critical theory is derived from Marxism. Critical theory believes in the perpetual struggle of classes and races and sexes and groups. Critical theory believes that you are not defined by your individuality. You are defined by the group you are in. And there is no group that is better than any other group. And to the extent you think your group is better than any other group, well, that is because you have oppressor within you. So for critical theorists, you can't condemn the Nazis because they were just another group. There is no evil. To the extent there's evil, it is affected by social policy. And many of the social policies that the people who support critical theory believe in are policies the Nazis themselves supported with the exception of the extermination of a race of people. And by the way, communists also supported the extermination of races of people, in in particular, Jews. Critical theory is bad. Critical theory is communist. Critical theory is dividing people into groups, abdicating individual responsibility, enforcing group responsibility. Someone has said recently, and I don't know who it was, but it's been picked up in social media by a lot of people, including uh, liberals who haven't bought into critical theory and, and conservatives, that it feels very much like at this point, we are in a society where individuals have no responsibility for their actions but we are all responsible for the actions of others. And that is part of critical theory. Critical theory involves you being part of a group and part of a culture in which there's no better culture or no better group. But there are groups that have sought to exert power and the other groups must unite to take power from that group and put them back in their place with relative equal balance to everyone else. The oppressor will be revolted against. The oppressed will then become the oppressor, but you're not allowed to get to that point of logic. You see critical theory play out in communist societies where everyone is equal, but some are more equal than others. There is always an elite. The question is, how easy is it to pick off the elite? In a in critical theory believes that there are some ideas that are too dangerous or too upsetting or too revolting to discuss in public. And it is those ideas that they don't like. Christianity is one of them. Now, why Christianity? Why, why are people proponents of critical theory? And by the way, the critical theory is, is, is moving into some church settings. And you need to understand that Christianity and critical theory are mutually incompatible. And the reason is because though Christianity does accept aspects of corporate sin, God does punish nations. God does turn his back on nations. Your relationship with the Messiah is an individual relationship. 
Your salvation is not dependent on others. In critical theory, your salvation is dependent on group salvation. And your salvation cannot come until other groups are silenced. Powerful groups have their power taken from them. You see critical theory play out in the uh, climate change movement of the day. What happens with climate change? Gavin Newsom, the, the governor of California, said he has no tolerance for climate change deniers. What happens in, in, in with climate change? You see, if you don't believe in climate change and you have an epiphany and decide, you know what, I, it's real. I embrace it. I accept it. I acknowledge it. Climate change is real you're still going to hell unless all the other climate deniers repent and take action. In critical theory, you're still in a damnable state until others are silenced or forced to repent for the views of their group, not themselves individually, but of their group, of their class. You can find no salvation as long as others are allowed to criticize you. You can find no salvation as long as others are allowed to spout heresies. In climate change, climate change is is the the perfect blending of this stuff. Whether you believe in climate change or or not, I'm not here to debate you on the merits of, of whether you believe it or not. But with climate change, as long as there are other mouth breathers out there who deny climate change, your world is still going to burn. The only way to stop your world from burning is to exercise dominance over those who disagree with you and shut them up, paint them as Holocaust deniers, paint them as fringe and not allow them to speak. There are actually a whole lot of good and credible climate scientists who disagree with the extremist views of climate change who are being treated as deniers because they're telling the climate science hysterics to calm down, it's not as bad as you claim. Well, then you must be denying it. You must have some level of power and privilege. You must be shut up. The same happens when it comes to race theory. The same happens when it comes to gender theory and the like. People who want to be portrayed as permanent victims but also claim that no culture is better than any other culture. And by the way, our culture actually is way better than most other cultures. You're not allowed to say that if you believe in critical theory. It is always about the perpetual struggle of classes and victims, and there must always be struggle. There can be no resolution to the struggle. There will be one day be utopia, but it will always come about violently in the end because a group that has power must be divested of that power. And once that group is divested of power, where does the power go? Power does not go into a vacuum and disappear. Power goes to other groups, and those groups become powerful, and then they must be revolted against in a perpetual struggle. And when you hear the word struggle, you're talking about people who believe in critical theory. Now, what's actually happening here? is that we're seeing black police chiefs around the country being purged from positions of power by proponents of critical theory. Why? Because the black police chief is part of a class, is part of a race, and by becoming a police chief, they have embraced whiteness, 
because whiteness is where power is found in this country, according to critical theorists. And if you have embraced that level of power that is tied to whiteness, you must be purged of that power and chased from your job uh, because you're doing the white man's work for him. Around the country, we're seeing black police chiefs thrown out of office, pressured to resign, etc., because of this sort of nonsense. But interestingly enough, we're also seeing the white kids taking over the protests because critical theory, as I've said, critical theory and Christianity cannot exist together. They are not compatible. And people who try to tell you they are should not be believed because the Bible talks, while it talks about corporate sin, it talks about our individual salvation. With critical theory, I can't be saved as long as you're allowed to spout nonsense. In Christianity, doesn't matter whether you believe in Jesus or not. If I do, I'm saved. And then my role is not to exercise judgment over you and silence you. My job is to work on my own salvation, my own sanctification. With critical theory, you've got to silence anyone who disagrees. They're not compatible. You cannot read scripture through critical theory. Uh, What you do is you get a bunch of gibberish that you have to try to reconcile and it doesn't work. Well, critical theory is becoming a religion in and of itself, and it's becoming a religion with a bunch of atheist white kids. This is from the Los Angeles Times, Aaron Logan writing, Black Lives Matter was once shunned by the white establishment, but now it's chic, and that's a problem. Black Lives Matter banners fly from homes in Silver Lake in California. Uh, Black Lives Matter posters are taped to the windows of Portland coffee shops. Black Lives Matter hashtags fill users' bios on Twitter and Tinder. Institutions including Uber, Airbnb, and the National Football League have embraced Black Lives Matter. Yes, the same NFL that shunned Colin Kaepernick four years ago for kneeling in protest of police brutality now issues calls to end racism in their end zones. The jolt of white solidarity is not imaginary. According to a June poll from Monmouth University, 49% of white Americans now say police are more likely to use excessive force against a black culprit. In 2016, that figure was 25%, but will it last? White people have been involved in black liberation efforts for centuries, from abolition in the 19th century to civil rights of the 20th, according to Hassan Kwame Jeffries, a history professor at Ohio State. Some white supporters bolstered the original Black Lives Matter movement, which emerged in response to police killing of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri. Young people like me, I'm 25, were the largest age cohort among the protesters. One reason young people protested is that they had been cooped up in their homes during the global pandemic. But there's a problem. The white people are taking over the protests. In fact, increasingly, when you see the protests shouting down businesses and getting in police officers' faces and disrupting restaurants, it's a bunch of 20-something white kids who are doing it. The white kids are taking over. White co-option can overshadow those involved in grassroots effort. It creates the illusion that everyone was part of the movement the whole time. This is, this is in, the, in the Los Angeles Times. White people are caring about the issue, and that's a bad thing because they're exercising dominance within the movement and they're gentrifying it. This is part of critical theory. 
it can't be happy. You can't be happy that white people agree. No, you can't be happy that they're protesting in the streets because they're overshadowing the black voices. They're beginning to exercise dominance and power in the movement, and that's bad. You will never be happy with critical theory because there will always be one group with too much power that needs its comeuppance and must be silenced. You know, as a Christian, as an evangelical, I recognize that the conservative ideal of the individual is not ideal in every case, but it sure is vastly better than the insanity that is collective guilt and shame and individual uh, lack of responsibility for one's own actions, which is critical theory. And this is going to come back and bite the Democrats if they're not careful. It is, and you can see it in the polling, how everyone reassured us, no, no, these aren't big issues. These aren't big issues. And now suddenly you're seeing the Democrats rush to grab hold of these issues and denounce the riots and denounce the violence and and say they're not willing to defund the police. It's starting to freak out the suburbs, and there's data that shows it. All right. Speaking of all the the Black Lives Matter stuff and, and critical theory, I don't know if you've heard, but the Oscars... The Oscars have decided that they're going to require diversity for best pictures. In the latest step in its ongoing effort to boost diversity, both within its own ranks and across the film industry, on Tuesday, the Film Academy announced new representation standards for films to be eligible to compete for best picture. Developed over the past few months by a special task force as part of the organization's Academy Aperture 2025 initiative. The standards encompass both representation on screen and the types of stories being told and the actors involved, as well as behind the scenes and the makeup of the crew and in the inclusivity of the companies involved. To be eligible for Best Picture, a film must meet at least two standards across four categories, on-screen representation, themes and narratives, creative leadership and project team, industry access and opportunities and audience development within each category are a variety of criteria involving the inclusion of people in underrepresented groups, including women, people of color, LGBTQ plus people, and those with cognitive or physical disabilities. Other Oscar categories will not be held to the same standards, but the contenders for best picture typically filtered down. Previously, the only standards to qualify for best picture involved a film's running time and specifics about how, where, and when it was screened in a public venue. The new standards won't go in effect until 2024, but at a time of racial reckoning, both for Hollywood and the nation as a whole, the Academy believes the requirements provide a roadmap for how the industry can ensure that at least those films that compete for its highest honor reflect the diversity, the movie-going audience of the wider world. I I, got to tell you, this isn't going to work. Do you know why it's not going to work? China. Chinese movie theater goers are actually fairly racist, and they don't like dark-skinned people. If your hero is non-white, it's not going to go over well with the Chinese audience, unless it's a lighter-skinned Asian person. That, that Listen, that's not me. Axios had a whole report on this yesterday. It's well-known within the industry. That's why you've actually seen the number of leads going to non-white people has declined since 2012 as Hollywood has expanded into China. 
But also, think about one of the best movies made last year was 1917. 1917. It was about a bunch of British people in World War I. Um, it's really hard to have the the wheelchair lesbian uh, running the platoon in 1917. Or what about Dunkirk? Dunkirk. That's right. Uh, very, very, very hard to have. I, I mean, I guess you could you could have the 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 Germans. Uh, I, I I don't know. Uh, what, what do you do? What minority group do you swap out for the British and the Germans so that Dunkirk could qualify for the best Oscar? <laughs> I guess maybe Marvel films will finally get their Oscars uh, get, given the um, given the diversity requirements. Uh, Good gracious, this stuff just, it goes to insanity rather quickly, doesn't it? Well, we had a caller call. I was going to take her call and then she hung up, but her point was sound and what we've covered that, uh, that so much of these protests now have been taken over by younger white people. I actually, a guy uh, that I follow on Instagram was in Los Angeles over the weekend and he put up a video uh he was at a restaurant and black lives matters protesters showed up and they were all white uh i don't recall seeing a single black person in the protests uh but yet they were uh waving their black lives matters flags and they were disrupting restaurateurs demanding that the restaurateurs uh throw their fists in the air for black lives matters by the way the fist in the air is a long time communist symbol representative of the struggle. And I I, I just, I, I don't want to sound like a broken record and I don't want to bore you to death, but, you know, I'm in seminary. I, I'm, I'm taking time off to, to, I'm doing five hours of radio a day. I'm about to potentially be doing eight hours of radio a day. And there are people in seminaries across this conservative Bible-believing seminaries right now debating how best to handle critical theory and can it be looked at you know the southern baptist convention passed a resolution uh the last convention they had in person about trying to understand people's worldview based on critical theory that that's how advanced critical theory has swept in uh and it is just a a backdoor into marxism and we think of, you know, we talk about communism sounds so 80s. But if you recall Barack Obama in the debate with Mitt Romney in 2012, uh, said the the Cold War called, the 80s called, they'd like their foreign policy back. Or the Cold War, yeah, the, the 80s called and they'd like their foreign policy back. And, and everyone in the media just got so full of priapism, excited by Barack Obama's clever little line about Mitt Romney. And then suddenly... Fast forward four years and the Russians are back and the Russians stole the election. It's not that Hillary Clinton lost or Donald Trump won. It's that the Russians stole it. Communism has never really gone away. We just stopped talking about it. And now more often than not, people talk about Marxism instead of communism. Marxism is communism. Marx took Marx came up with his ideas along with Engel. Uh, an economic and social view that uh, the world is at, the class struggle is real and the workers of the world should unite and control everything. Well, eventually what it becomes is the leaders 
control everything. And, and communism is derived from Marxism, and they're pretty much identical. And it has never left academia, and that is where critical theory has cropped up. And because critical theory is not tied directly to Marxism except by its chief proponents, people don't realize that it's Marxist in worldview. I, I want to spend a, I wasn't going to do this. This isn't in the list of stuff that I want to do, but but I've been I've been talking about this so much. Um let, let me just let, let, let me give you a, an explanation here. What what I've told my kids. Everyone has a worldview. Everyone views the world in a way that explains the world to them. Critical theory is a worldview. Critical race theory, critical gender theory, critical theory in gender, in general, not in gender, in general. Critical theory is a way that uh, Marxist academics explain the world. That there is perpetual struggle on the way to a utopian society. That there are ideas that conflict with the struggle and those ideas must be silenced. That there is no heaven and hell, there is this world and what you make of it. And the only way to save yourselves is to silence those who have too much power and privilege. The language of privilege has been embraced by so many people. It's replaced the language of blessing. If you have a two-parent heterosexual nuclear household where one parent stays home, usually the mom and the dad works, you used to be called blessed and now you're called privileged. And it went from being a good thing to a bad thing because it gives you more power and more privilege than someone else. The things that were good are now bad. The things that are were bad were, are now good. Critical theory has a way of turning normalcy into deviancy and deviancy into normalcy. And we're to strive for the broken, not to strive for the whole. It is an ordered part of existence that kids should have two parents, a mom and a dad. And kids who are raised in a two-parent household, most particularly a two-parent heterosexual nuclear household, tend to be more well-adjusted, more mature, better educated, more advanced, healthier, live a more productive life, and have higher earning. And now that's bad. And it is the broken home of the wayward soul that we're supposed to give voice to. And we're supposed to not just appreciate their experience, but we're to let their experience dominate over those who have had power and privilege, so-called power and privilege. That is critical theories worldview. And it explains the world in forms of perpetual struggle. It explains the world in form of power. It cannot truly explain altruism of people just doing good any more than libertarianism as a worldview can. It can't explain evil other than evil as social policy, that social policy 
in some way cause people to do bad things. And it takes away individualism. You and I are body and soul. And we have individuality. We have individual traits. We have individual characteristics. Two people, twins in a household, can be very different in humor, in outlook in life, in outcome in life, based on their individuality, even though they were raised in the same household. Because we all have individual volition, and critical theory takes that away from us and makes it part of a group. But there are other worldviews. And my worldview is a biblical worldview. And that, to me, explains the world, that God created the heavens and the earth, in all things, in all of creation, that all of us can see in a telescope or in a microscope, God created. And he has a plan, and parts of that plan we don't understand. And you know, that's one of the things that sets the Christian worldview apart from so much is that if you get an honest Christian in the room with you, they'll tell you there are lots of things they don't understand. Why did God allow the fall of man to happen? Why, why did he? But Christianity can tell you what was before the Big Bang. What what was before let there be light? We have answers to things others don't. What came before that? God. What comes after the end of the universe? God and us. And along the way, people are sinners. We live in a fallen world, and people individually are sinners. And while we corporately, as a society, walk in or out of the grace of God, we individually have responsibilities and we individually have salvation and our path to salvation is completely different from other people's paths to salvation and all of us are dependent on God, not on each other, though we have corporate responsibility. And if I find salvation, it doesn't mean that you can't and it doesn't mean you won't. And if you do or don't, it's not dependent on me. With critical theory, among others, salvation is a collective thing. We're all in it together. We all sink or swim together, uh, not with Christianity. It explains the way I see the world. It explains how I operate in the world. It explains how I navigate in the world in the same way you have your worldview too. One of the biggest challenges, particularly in the South, where I am, uh, wherever you're listening worldwide on the internet, wherever, uh, in the South, uh, there is a, a, a worldview that is supposedly Christian, but it's not. It's actually a very secular worldview. It is a cultural Christian worldview where there are behaviors in which you engage and there are behaviors in which you do not engage and there are people with whom you associate and people with whom you do not associate because they are perceived to be bigger sinners than you. Uh, but you don't really have a grounded scriptural worldview. You pretend to and you don't. And, and frankly, we see a lot of this in politics these days, do we not? Not to step on your toes, but I'm about to. There are a whole lot of people in politics these days who claim, for example, to be Christian and have it dark in the door of a church in God knows how long. They're the bass boat on Sunday. They use Christian language because it's the language they grew up with. They use words like saving and sanctification and salvation but their salvation is found on a bass boat and their sanctification is how many fish they catch or not. They sound like the Christian, but they don't actually behave like the Christian. You know, there was an interesting data point in 2016. The more likely someone was to go to church in 2016, pay attention to it because you didn't get a lot of coverage of this, but it was in the Pew study, it was in the Barna study, it was in the Gallup study. 
the more likely a person went to church. In 2016, the more likely a self-described Christian went to church, the less likely they were to support Donald Trump. The more often a self-described Christian did not go to church, the more likely they were to embrace Donald Trump. Did you know that? Because it's true. Evangelicals in this country, we give evangelicals a label. They have a particular worldview, but their worldview is is as American as apple pie. Uh, The American Christian church these days is overwhelmingly not really Christian per se. Uh, It is America with Jesus. And that explains some people's worldview. So the worldview of the person who is actually committed to a scriptural worldview is a worldview that has to recognize uh, that there is corporate sin and there is individual sin. There are corporate obligations and there are individual obligations. And in those corporate obligations, those individual obligations, we have a we have to recognize uh, that situations like George Floyd or Ahmed Arbery are bad situations, and we should not have those exist. And we should work together as a society to make those end. In a secularized America Jesus worldview, you don't necessarily recognize the corporate obligations. Everything is a purely individual obligation. Meanwhile, on the critical theory side of things, it's all corporate and it's no individual obligation. How you see the world matters. Increasingly, there are those because they believe that that they are, for example, uh, within an, an orthodox Christian worldview, and they believe that there is corporate and individual responsibility, they are increasingly flirting with the idea of of the balance moving towards corporate, and they're moving towards a critical theory, which actually pulls them outside of a church because it then disconnects them completely from individual responsibility. There's actually more in common with with the, the America Jesus folks and the Christian folks these days than the critical theorists, but there are a lot of people within the church who see problems, particularly in white Southern churches where it is so white, and there are so many people who still go to church who actually have this distinctly individualistic worldview, and there are people in the church saying, wait a second, wait a second, there's more than this individual worldview. We we need to actually recognize what other people experience in the world. Hey, all these people are talking about critical theory. Let's go embrace it. And that as well pulls them out of church and into ideas that are not compatible with faith. And they try and they struggle and they twist to make them compatible, but they're ultimately not compatible. We're seeing this so much more. Uh, The number of people, you know, I, I, for some reason or another, I'm considered an evangelical leader of this country, and I'm often on email chains and in uh, Slack groups with individuals who are arguing about these things. And it is remarkable to witness the people who are so concerned with connecting with lost souls, with whimsy, and and using their rhetoric, and and oftentimes they wind up losing themselves or they miss the point entirely, Uh, ultimately you do have to stand for some level of truth. And you're not going to find truth in critical theory because in critical theory there actually is no truth. It is a distinct, unique part of critical theory that there's no such thing as truth. You can have your truth. We hear this in the rhetoric of the day, that you have your truth and I have my truth, but there is no absolute truth. That as well is incompatible with my worldview and it is incompatible with the world because there is real truth in the world. And so the response of the critical theorist is you've got to shut up. You can't say stuff like that. It becomes heresy. 
it is another religion. And I'm, I'm actually really concerned in, in a lot of white churches, in the South in particular, there are a whole lot of people who've decided they don't even want to deal with the issue of racial reconciliation because it just sounds Marxist. It, it sounds bad. Let's just give them Jesus. Well, you know, Jesus wants to reconcile the races. And there's a way to deal with racial reconciliation, acknowledging historically painful truths and pointing to the gospel, as opposed to critical theory, which points to something other than the gospel. And there are a lot of people in churches who are so frustrated with their fellow congregants refusing to acknowledge the need for racial reconciliation, they're headed out the other door towards critical theory, which loses them as well. I, you know, I've always, I, I didn't mean for this to be the, the Bible hour here, but I've always kind of described Christianity as walking a tightrope. You know, there's a whole lot of room on either side of faith to fall off. And sometimes it's hard to keep your balance walking the tightrope of faith. It's very simple. The tightrope on which you walk is the truth that we live in a fallen world and we individually need a savior and we need to repent of our sins and accept our savior. And you can fall off one side into law, too much law. You can fall off one side into too much grace. You can fall off one side into too much individuality you can fall off the other side into too much corporatism. You can fall off one side in too much New Testament. You can fall off the other side into too much Old Testament. You're supposed to stay on the tightrope. And a lot of people don't seem to get that. And a lot of churches are being rocked these days. The one thing I can tell you definitively is that if you reject the idea of critical theory, and you should, don't so consume yourself with the idea of individuality that you reject there is a corporate responsibility. And if you've dared to go down the road of corporate responsibility, don't go so far down the road that you reject your individual necessity and requirement. And we're seeing way too many people on both sides do both of those things. And it's dangerous and it's going to further rock. I mean, we thought the last four years have been tumultuous within American evangelicalism. Wait four more years as critical theory continues to plant roots within churches. All right. uh, Enough on critical theory. I, I, I feel compelled to talk about it just because it is so much. It is so much in conversation these days. And so many people claim to understand it, and I'm no expert on it, but I know how to read the people who are from Tim Keller and others. And, and it's, it is striking to me the number of people who would have you believe it has nothing to do with Marxism or communism, uh, that it's just some sort of academic theory, and it's not. Uh, it, it is very, very specifically Marxist. And, and all of the people who came up with the idea very, very much were Marxist. Now, before we get out of here, uh, I would like to review the Sturgis study with you because you're probably going to hear a lot about the Sturgis study. Uh, if, if you haven't, an academic paper claims that 209,000 cases and $12 billion in medical costs and healthcare costs can be attributed to Sturgis, the mass rally of bikers up in the Dakotas. 
Uh, I don't know of any serious people in medicine who have delved in. And now I know a lot of serious people in medicine who've who've seen the 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 bullet points that oh well this is very serious if this is proven. And then I, I see a lot of people who actually dive into the study and read it. And they're like, nah, no, this isn't really it. So much of, of the COVID-19 stuff at this point has become so political. I mean, look, look at what I was saying earlier. If, if you're just tuning in, Georgia has had really good weeks. you got to go back to July to find um, to, to find comparable data. In most parts of the state, you got to go back to June. Uh, the number of COVID cases is down for 48% from the high at the end of July. We're headed in the right direction in every category in almost every part of the state, except for a handful of college towns. And so you're not hearing any blame of the governor. And in three weeks, if there's a Labor Day spike, you'll, they'll be back to blaming the governor. They'll be back to leaking secret White House reports that make Georgia look bad. All of that. But right now you, you can't. And so the, the media has got to find some way to blame Christy Nome. Christy Nome is the governor of South Dakota, and she has uh, basically marched to the beat of her own drummer when it comes to COVID-19. And her state has not had a substantial outbreak. And where it has, they've contained it. It's been in meatpacking facilities and places like that and on Indian reservations. And But she's clearly a contender for 2020. And so the media has got to rough her up now. And that so much of the Sturgis stuff is all uh, pre-gaming 2024 uh, going after Christy Nome, trying to to blame her, and also the motorcycles, because because Lord knows they don't like the motorcyclists out there, uh, and and you got to blame them as well. The the hard headed guys who they're all Trump supporters, you know, at least they presume, and you got to do this. It's absolute nonsense that they're doing. Don't be be skeptical of the Sturgis study. Be skeptical of the Sturgis study when you hear people talk about it. 